If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 6. It's been called the greatest sermon ever preached, and yet we do not even have all the words to the sermon. Matthew chapter 5 through 7 are often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount because there Jesus takes His disciples up on a mountain where they settle in for an all-day Bible conference. Luke's version of that sermon here in chapter 6 is usually referred to as the Sermon on the Plain because he adds the detail that as Jesus settled the people down on this mountainside, it was in fact on a plain or a level place where they sat for the teaching. What does Jesus teach here? What is What makes this so significant and so special? In these verses, Jesus essentially sets out what it means to follow Him. What it means to be a disciple of His. To speak on this side of the cross and resurrection, He essentially explains what it means to be a Christian. He is establishing for those there in His midst and for all who would come after Him a pattern of living and thinking that should be the mark of those that are part of His kingdom. Though He is certainly speaking to a mixed crowd, that is to say there would be those who were not His disciples, who perhaps only came for healing, perhaps came to, to, to wonder about this man Jesus. We know from the passages we will see in a minute that Jesus is fundamentally preaching to His disciples. We saw two weeks ago that Jesus had spent the night in prayer, up on this mountain, and then when he was done in the morning, he called his disciples to himself, he named and set apart twelve of them that would be apostles, and now he sets them all down for this massively important teaching. Yet even as important as it it is, again, we don't have all of it. Even if you read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, it will only take you 10 or 15 minutes. Now, we need to understand, Jesus did not gather together people from perhaps two and three days journey for a 15 minute devotional. That's not what that day was about. It would have gone all day much as the teaching of that day would have. And like most of the sermons and teachings we have in the Bible, what we simply have is an outline. That is to say, we have the major points that Jesus would have covered. In fact, perhaps almost every verse constituting a sermon in itself. But what Matthew records in three chapters, Luke actually only gives us in one. Now, why is that? Well, needless to say, that has engendered all kinds of speculation by Bible scholars and Bible readers alike. But in the end, what we can say for certain is this. Luke believes this is what is essential for his Gentile audience to hear. Though all of Scripture is God's Word, we know it was penned by men moved by God. And each of those men did not lose their personality in the midst of that writing. They did not go into a trance or in some kind of prophetic state where their eyes glazed over and they were just scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. No, as Luke is writing, he has done research, he has planned an outline, he knows what he wants to say to the people to whom he is writing. And therefore he takes what Matthew gives as a longer exposition and pairs it down to give us the essentials for those Gentiles that will be receiving this gospel, helping them to know what does it mean to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. What does it mean, even though you're living in the kingdom of Caesar, to truly live under the kingdom of Christ. That's what Luke is setting out to do for us in the rest of chapter 6. And how does he begin? How does Jesus begin with this sermon of sermons? What is the first thing that he says to lay a foundation for his people? Well, follow along as as we read. I'm going to back up and read just a few verses to give us context, and then we'll be explaining and unpacking verses 20 
and following this morning. Jesus came down with them, his disciples and apostles, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and with a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading this morning. Jesus begins here in these opening verses of this important sermon by essentially redefining life for his people. He has taken some of the most common, some of the most important parts of life, and he flips them contrary to what his disciples have probably always believed. In essence, Jesus is leveling the playing field of life, as it were, and putting himself front and center that all of the attention, all of the focus, all of life should be lived and centered around him. That's what we see in these verses. And we see it first in the fact that Jesus redefines the source of authority for his people's lives. He redefines the source of authority. In addition to coming to Jesus for healing, Luke says the people came to hear him. Hear him do what? Sing? No. Hear him teach. Earlier in Luke, we saw that it was common practice for teachers in Israel to essentially quote those previous teachers that had come before them, that their their sermons, their instructions, their Bible studies were little more than a collection of sayings gathered over time that were thought to be wise. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus depends on no one for what he says. He needs no authority to back his teaching. He is the authority behind his teaching and what he says. Furthermore, when we think of all the great prophets of the Old Testament, when we think about their ministry, and we should say that If you've not read much of the prophets, probably popularly, just by use of the word prophet, we tend to think of someone who looks to the future, as one who predicts. And certainly that was a part of some of their ministry, but primarily the prophets were preachers. They were men called by God to a people not keeping the law of God to call them back to faithfulness to God, as evidenced in living according to their law. And their ministry was primarily just that, preaching from the law, application to people, calling them back to keep it. Now imagine, though, if rather than a prophet, God himself came and preached. That's what's happening here. Years ago, I was at a conference bookstore. I know. Who would have thought? But I was at a conference bookstore, and at this particular point, not buying books, but trying to help one of my friends buy a book. He was looking for one on evangelism and we were looking at the table marked evangelism and looking at all the options that were there and I said, you should probably really get this one. 
Tell the truth by Will Metzger. And I, and I opened it up to the table of contents, that part nobody else reads. And I began walking him through why this was such a helpful book. Uh, and, and he's, he's nodding and getting more interested and more interested. And he picks up a copy and begins to thumb through it. And all that time, two people stand up, or walk up to us. And I, and I think in my mind, they're wanting the table. So I start to back up. When I look up, and there's an older man and a younger man, and the younger man says, hey, I'm glad you're looking at that book. Here's the author, Will Metzger. Now, at that moment, what am I going to say? Am I going to keep talking this book up? Am I going to start telling, explaining why this book is good and great? No, anything I have to say is going to be eclipsed by the fact that the man himself is there. The author is standing there. Ask him all the questions you want. I have nothing else to say. So I say, nice to meet you, sir. I'm thankful for your book. And, 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 I, and I step out and just watch the rest of the conversation happen. In a very similar way, here is Jesus. The, the authors of the scriptures have wrote them down, others have preached them, but here now is the ultimate author of the scriptures proclaiming truth to God's people. But he's doing more than that. He's doing more than that. Often when challenged, Jesus would appeal to the Old Testament scriptures to show what I'm teaching you is nothing inherently off or new or apart from what you've heard in the past. It is in fact the fulfillment of everything you've heard in the past. So he would he would essentially proof text himself. He would say the 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 Pharisees and the scribes would come and say, well, what about this, Jesus? And his first response was almost always, what does the law say? What do the scriptures say? What does God say in his word? Because he wants to get them to, to focus back and realize our life is driven by the authority of God through his word. But here, here, he's not doing that. This is not simply a Bible study on the Old Testament scriptures. He is proclaiming to them absolute authoritative truth, what we now have as new scripture. In other words, he is not simply looking back and saying, based upon the authority of God's word, here's what I teach you. No, now he is the authority. What he says, what falls from his lips is scripture, authoritative scripture, words from the very lips of God for his people. And in doing so now, not just for those that are there, but for us today, he has shifted the center, the locus of authority for our lives. It is now not just the scriptures that are authoritative for God's people. It is the scriptures, all of the scriptures, understood through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that now the Old Testament is irrelevant. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that Christians should only be red-letter Bible-only Christians. I, I, I'm not saying that because Jesus did not say that. Jesus said that in Matthew 5, he came to fulfill the law and that none of it would fail until the end of the age. Why is none of it going to fail? Because he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. He is what they were all pointing towards and getting the people ready for. So as long as Christ stands authoritative over all things, the scriptures have authority and meaning for our life as well. Nevertheless, we are not to read them apart from Jesus Christ. He is the one that gives them abiding relevance. He stands at the center of the Bible. Everything before is pointing towards him and everything after is pointing back to him, explaining why he is the center of all things. Now again, all of that may sound nice, but maybe not all that new, maybe not all that dramatic. But considering those listening to Jesus' sermon on that day, consider most of them are Jews, not just knowing, but perhaps even delighting in their life under the law of Moses. And now Jesus is coming 
And he is not saying, like all the other prophets before, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. Now he is saying, obey me. Trust me. Live for me. And if they had done that, if they had obeyed Jesus, if they had trusted Jesus, if they had lived for Jesus, then they would have been keeping the law because he is the one to whom the law pointed. Think, for example, about the Apostle Paul. Here is a man who was an Israelite to his core. He was a Pharisee who loved the Scriptures and knew the Scriptures. He studied under one of the most revered rabbis in all of Israel. When it came to actually living out the law, he said, my life was blameless. I always kept it. But then he met Jesus. Then he met Jesus. He sees in him resurrected, glorified on a road to Damascus, and suddenly his entire life is turned upside down. He goes from being a persecutor of the church to an apostle of the church. Now, what is the full effect of this when it comes to Christ's authority? 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. He is explaining his approach to ministry and how when he is with the Jews, he, he lives like a Jew. He lives as if he is under the law. He keeps all of the, the traditions and he, he keeps all of the commandments laid down about what could be eaten and how it could be eaten and, and how you washed your hands. He says, but when I'm with the Gentiles, I don't live that way. Because I know I'm not under the law of Moses. And he says very clearly, that doesn't mean I do sinful things. That doesn't mean I, I engage in false worship or, or in, in all kinds of other uh, clearly and obviously morally defiling things that mark the pagan world. Because he says, I'm still under the law of God, but I'm not under the law of God given through Moses. Now I am under the law of God given through Christ. And so he says, there, there's no need to keep food laws anymore. Because back then, that food was never about food. It wasn't about whether or not this was actually healthy or not. It was about marking you out distinctive from the people of God. And we're going to talk more about that towards the end of the sermon. What he's saying now is all of that has been fulfilled in Christ. And so I have perfect freedom to live as a Jew or live as a Gentile. Because now the center of authority in my life is the living, resurrected Son of God, who is the Lord above all things. That is a, a massive, massive thing. For a first century Jew to say. A godly first century Jew to say. And again, we, we, we may think that, that that's great, but that's not us. What difference does it make? It still bears a weight of difference when we consider what it means for Jesus to be the authority in our lives. Consider three implications. First of all, Jesus' authority over us is displayed in our love for him. So Jesus' authority is seen in love. Jesus' authority is seen in love, namely our love for him. Jesus is the one who says this. John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. There's not a lot of wiggle room in that verse. What displays the authority of Jesus in our life more than obeying him? The fact that we obey not just out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of love for Jesus. So his authority over our life, unlike any other... I, I love my wife, but I don't have to obey her. Right? She, she, she's not king over my life. Okay? I, I, I love and respect a lot of people as my neighbor. But the mark of my love for them is not my total and absolute obedience to them. They don't give me commands. They don't reign over me. Only Jesus. Only Jesus should I obey fully and completely 
as a display of my love for him. Secondly, Jesus' authority is one that brings fellowship and fruitfulness. Jesus displays authority that brings in brings us into fellowship and fruitfulness. Jesus tells his disciples, the next chapter over, John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Jesus says, I have come and I want you to have a life filled with joy, filled with love, filled with fellowship with God, just as my life is full of joy and love and fellowship with God. But the path to that is obedience. Abiding in me. How do you abide in me? By having my word in you and obeying that word. I I don't know how practically we put that into action apart from just simply saying again, Jesus is calling us to read and to know and to memorize and to obey his word. And from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, all of the scriptures are his word. Not just the red letters in our Bible. So if Jesus says, you'll know, people will know that you are my disciples by the fruitfulness of your lives. That's what God wants for us. Spiritual fruit that comes from fellowship with Him. How does that happen? By us abiding in Christ. How do we abide in Him? By having His Word abide in us. Thus, Jesus' authority tied to His Word brings about fruitfulness and fellowship with God. Finally, Jesus' authority serves as a foundation for life. At the very end of this Sermon on the Plain that we will look at in a few weeks, Jesus asked this question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Friends, that, that is a haunting question if I've ever heard one. Can you imagine if Jesus himself was standing before us, all of us that have in the past even sang explicitly songs like, Jesus is Lord, nevertheless, ones who have stood before this congregation as members and said we believe that Jesus is Lord, we have identified with Him through baptism, proclaiming He is Lord over my life, and yet not do what He tells us to do, and for Him to ask that to our face, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do what I tell you to do? That's a haunting question. But Jesus goes on. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, a stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does, and the one who hears and does not do them, is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus says at the end of the day, here here is the reality. Life hangs in the balance when it comes to Jesus' authority. If we hear His words, if we see Him asserting His authority, and we reject it and we turn away from Him, He says, we have no hope in this life or the next. But if if we see Him assert His authority, and we say, yes, Jesus, I, I see you 
as authoritative over my life because you are God in the flesh. And, and I know that you want me to have a life of joy in you and, and fellowship with God and, and fruitfulness for your kingdom. And therefore, I will establish my life upon the foundation of your authority. Then we do have hope in this life and in the life to come. At the end of the day, Jesus begins by drawing people to Himself and opening His mouth and teaching as a way to establish that He is now the source of authority, the immediate source of authority for the life of His people. He redefines that now in this new covenant. And secondly, He redefines the meaning of blessedness. He redefines the meaning of blessedness. The word blessing or blessedness is one of those churchy words that so many of us use without really probably having too much of an idea of what in the world we're talking about. It's the kind of Christianese lingo that we we throw around and if lost people ever ask, what does that mean? We say, I don't know, we just say it at church. So what does it mean? Well, some tie it to material prosperity. So much so that in some African countries, you are not considered fit to be a pastor until God has made you a wealthy man. Then God has blessed you to the point that you are prepared for the pastorate. Well, we're typically not that bold in this country, although I hear there is a new uh, television program coming on featuring five pastors of mega churches who are also incredibly wealthy out in L.A. One of them has his own helicopter. That should be interesting. And probably not all that great for the kingdom of Christ's reputation, but I diverge. Most of us in this country are not that bold, but there is still the popular belief that the better off you are, the more blessed you are by God. We, we even talk that way. I, I was incredibly blessed by God because I got a year-end extra Christmas bonus. So what about the guy who didn't get the Christmas bonus? Is he less blessed than you? I mean, that, that's what we're saying. If, if I got a nicer car than what I had before, and now I've been very blessed by God, does that mean that I was not blessed before when I had the clunker and the junker? You see, that's the popular way that we use those words. But, but is that what it means? Some translations have the word happy. And I'll just say that that's not a good translation. Because certainly while the person who is blessed will undoubtedly be happy, that blessedness can never be reduced to mere happiness. In the context, blessedness is a state of well-being when it comes to our relationship with God. It means we have been approved, we have been approved by God Himself. We are acknowledged in a right relationship with Him. That's what it means. And notice what Jesus does. He flips society's expectations on its head, perhaps your expectations on its head when it comes to blessedness. He redefines what it means to be blessed by God. Listen again to what he says. Verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and when they revile you, and when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their prophets did, did the, for the people did to the prophets. Poverty, hunger, sorrowfulness, and persecution. These are the things the world pities and reviles. It's the things that they do not want. 
We, we do not want to be poor. We do not want to be hungry. We do not want to be filled with sorrow. And we don't want to be persecuted. But what does Jesus say? In my kingdoms, in my kingdom, those are signs that you're blessed by God. Huh? Huh? More than that, notice the woes that he pronounces. What is a woe? As far as I know, I've never heard anyone use that word ever in my life, apart from the Bible and the tales of Prairie Home Companion and Lake Wobegon. Other than that, you know, I guess maybe, maybe being funny. But we don't say, what does that mean? It simply means to be accursed. It means you have the judgment of God upon you. It is a pronouncement of cursing. Verse 24, woe to you, curse to you, the judgment of God upon you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Wealth, abundance, laughter, a good reputation. These are the things that describe the perfect life, don't they? Isn't this the good life according to our cultural standards? Go into almost any young adult clothing store. Just walk past them in the mall and looking at the, at what is displayed on the walls and in their, in their catalogs and you will find these things, abundance, wealth, laughter and good reputation photographed as the good life that will come to yours as part of wearing our clothing. That's what we want. Some of you have been in there. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right? I got a, I got a, a head nod instead of an amen, but I'll take it. This is what society wants and this is what we're programmed to desire even at a young age. But what does Jesus say? Woe be to you. Who are these things? Huh? Huh? We want comfort and ease in this life. We want to be well thought of and to live without financial worry. But Jesus declares a curse on those kinds of people. He says, if these things mark your life, you have no part in my kingdom. Now what is this about? What is Jesus saying here? Some have tried to say Jesus was the original socialist Marxist. I'm not kidding. Entire books and PhDs and classes are are taught on Marxist theory from the teaching of Jesus. Others point to him as being the source of liberation theology. That basically, if you are wealthy, you're a sinner and God hates you. I mean, that's the reason why in this country right now we have an an entire line of thinking that says we must punish corporate America. Now, can, can, can people in corporate America be sinful and make bad decisions? Heck yeah. But does that mean that they are inherently evil? That what Jesus says here means that they have no hope of salvation and that judgment is going to be upon them? As we think about what Jesus is saying here, we need to first understand that poverty and wealth, hunger and abundance, mourning or joy, persecution or popularity are not in and of themselves inherently states of blessedness or cursing. They're not because Jesus goes back and forth throughout his entire life. Did you ever think about that? Not the wealth part so much, although he was buried in the grave of a wealthy man that we'll talk about in a minute. There are times when Jesus is incredibly popular and well thought of. But oh, how the crowds turn so quickly against him. And so the question is, 
What makes these things a mark of blessing or cursing? And the answer comes in verse 22. It's about our relationship to Jesus. Jesus speaks about poverty, hunger, sorrowfulness, and persecution on account of the Son of Man. That's the key. That's the key. Why are you experiencing these things? Why are these things a part of your life? Is it because of Jesus, the Son of Man, or because of something else? So let's start with a negative example first. Two people that don't fit the mold of those that have a woe upon them. The author of this book, Luke, and Joseph of Arimathea. Now Luke, we know, as we said before, is a physician. He's a doctor. That means he's, he's in the professional class in the first century. He would have been a wealthy man. So here's a wealthy man, obviously blessed by God because he's writing scripture that we still have today. He doesn't fit the pattern, does he? What about Joseph of Arimathea? He was a rich man who gave his grave over to Jesus, not expecting to get it back. Right? Some of you were thinking that, weren't you? Well, he's only raised in three days. It doesn't matter. Sure, you can borrow it. That's not what he was thinking. That's not what he was thinking. Every single time Luke uses the word rich, it is never in a positive way. Never. Yet Matthew calls Joseph very clearly a rich man in chapter 27. You know what Luke tells us about him in chapter 23? He was a good and righteous man. So here are two men, two wealthy men, yet they are not the objects of Jesus' judgment on the wealthy. Why? Because they followed him. That's what makes the difference. Think about this. Jesus has gathered this following and here at the very beginning of his ministry, he's setting out the foundation for them and he's telling them, if you follow me as my disciples, this is what it's going to be like. This is what life in my kingdom is going to be like. This is what you can expect. Poverty, hunger, sorrow, and persecution. In fact, if you're following me and there's a lot of people that like you and not persecuting you, and, you've, and you never experience any difficulty, probably means you're not really part of my kingdom. He's telling them at the beginning. I mean, this is, this is not the recruitment film that we typically would play at the new members meeting, right? You know, uh, what can you expect as a member of Crossway Christian Church? You will be poor. You will be hungry. You will be stoned in the streets. Don't you want to join today? I mean, we don't do that, do we? But that's exactly what Jesus does. He says, you better be ready for the battle. Because that's what this is about to be, a spiritual conflict of proportions that have never been seen before. Because now the fulfillment of all of God's promises is standing before you. And when you set your flag up and declare your colors and they are mine, then literally hell is going to break loose against you. So from this, what should we take away from these things? At least two things when it comes to our thinking about blessedness. First, Jesus should be our treasure above everything else. Jesus should be our treasure above everything else. One famous writer has said, all that glitters is not gold. And it's wise words. Words from Shakespeare, classic literature. How about something that maybe is not considered so classic, maybe somewhat poppy? How about Glinda the Good Witch from Wicked? When she sings, happy is what happens when all your dreams come true. And then there is this moment of doubt in the song. Isn't it? Isn't it? 
Isn't happiness what happens when all your dreams come true? The answer is no. All your dreams can come true in this life and you'll still go to hell in the next. So true happiness is not found in just having all your dreams come through. And in fact, in the rest of that song, she says, uh, I, you know, I've gone to this place and I've had to cross bridges and I didn't think I was going to cross and, and difficulty has come and I didn't think it was going to come. Jesus is saying, though, if you look to me in faith, if you treasure me more than anything else, then you will be blessed. You will be blessed even when you're in poverty, even when you're hungry, even when people are persecuting you. You will still be blessed if your life is focused on me. Your relationship with God will be secure. And that is what defines blessedness. Why does all that revolve around Jesus? Because he is the Savior that we all need. That's the great theme of Luke's gospel. That's the thesis he is advancing, verse after verse, paragraph after paragraph, chapter after chapter, that Jesus is the Savior, not just of the Jews, but the Savior of the whole world. And how does he bring salvation to us? By setting aside all of the obvious blessedness of his existence. As the Son of God, the universe bows at the feet of Jesus. The wealth of His glory is unimaginable. The joy of His eternal fellowship with the Father and the Spirit is endless. And what does He do? He lays it all aside. He takes on flesh of humanity, identifies with the lowest of the low, becoming a poor Jewish peasant who experiences both sorrow at sin, observes the pain of death and sin, and even tastes sin itself, taking upon himself finally the fullness of God's wrath against sin. Why did he do that? He did it for us, to be our savior, to be the great treasure of our lives. The same sinners who deserve the woes of God's judgment instead receive the blessings of his fellowship because God's own son took the woes in their place. This is what comes to all who trust in Jesus as their savior, who treasure him above all things. But secondly, Jesus, Jesus should be the measure of our relationship to God. Jesus should be the measure of our relationship to God. Like a sharpie in the hand of a child as he scribbles all over a new white upholstered couch. This world is indelibly marked by sin and we suffer for it. And we suffer for it. Jesus sets this teaching out at the beginning because he doesn't want his disciples to be deceived about what life is going to be like. It's not a bed of roses. It's not going to be easy. Likewise, for us today, when life is reduced to nothing, we should not falter in our confidence that God loves us. If Jesus is our treasure, if our faith is in Him to make us right with God and nothing else, then when we fall from wealth to poverty or lose our, perse- our, our reputation or suffer persecution, we should not ask, where is God? Doesn't He love me anymore? If Christ is our Savior, then our Heavenly Father is still with us, even in the midst of adversity. He is still loving us. He is still blessing us. Our circumstances, mark this down. If you don't write anything else down, mark this down. Our circumstances do not dictate the evidence of God's love for us. The cross dictates the evidence of God's love for us. And you cannot argue with that. You can never argue with that. Jesus redefines the source of authority for our lives, the meaning of blessedness for our lives, and finally, He redefines the distinctiveness of faith. He redefines the distinctiveness of faith. If you want to do a more in-depth study in the Sermon on the Mount, I recommend John Stott's little commentary, the subtitle of which is Christian Counter Culture. 
It's an incredibly appropriate title because it's exactly what Jesus is setting out here. The sermon has been interpreted in a number of different ways over the years. One of popular ways of interpreting it is to say, all of this is just an incredibly high standard that no one can actually live up to. And it simply means to get you to confront the fact that you're helpless apart from God and turn to faith in Him. And then you're done with the Sermon on the Mount. Well, I scratch my head at that because when I read that, I, I, don't, get, I don't get that. And the majority of Christians don't get that. This is real and true expectations for life in Christ's kingdom. This is what he expects the church to look like. And yet, it is an almost impossibly high ideal. That doesn't mean we stop striving for it. Do, do, we, do we listen to First Peter say, Be holy as God is holy and say, Well, can't do that. I'll just live how I want and throw, my, throw myself on the grace of God. No, we strive for that holiness, but we do so through faith in Christ. Trusting, as Paul says, in the strength with which he strengthens me. The sermon then is a primer for living as disciples of Jesus. It's what Christianity should look like in this world. And it's what should set us apart from the world around us. I want you to go back and think about what we hinted at earlier. Old covenant Israel and what set them apart from the world. Under the Old Covenant, they were given instructions, as we saw many of them in our study in Leviticus early in the year, how to plant and cultivate their crops, how and what to eat, who, where, and when to worship, and so much more, how to use their time, how to, how to treat their slaves. And all those things were designed to set them apart from everything else. So imagine for a minute someone either traveling through Israel, perhaps an Israelite living on the, on the edge of the boundaries of their land, being able to see down into the, 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 the valley of, a, of another individual, a pagan man, not part of the people of Israel. And they begin to talk and they begin to have a relationship. And, and, and one day they happen to be out, maybe they're, maybe they're shepherds with their sheep. And, and one day they're out and the man begins to, to pull out his surf and turf lunch of shellfish and pork. He says, hey, you want to join me for a meal? Sign a friendship. And the Jew says, oh, no, uh, I, I can't do that. He says, what do you mean? It's just food. It's great. My wife salted it herself. It tastes wonderful. And he says, I, I can't do that. I can't, can't eat shellfish. I can't have pig. I can't even have food associated with it. I've got to go have my lunch uh, uh, up on the hill. And the guy probably is going to think one of two things. Number one, that dude's weird. But secondly, he's not like me. He, he's not like me. He's different than me. And that's the point. That's what the law was meant to do. It was only to mark out... God's people as unique, but it was supposed to provide an automatic barrier to keep them from saying, yeah, sure, I'll eat with you. And then, yeah, sure, I'll go to your house. And then, yeah, sure, I'll go to your temple and worship a false god. See how easy that is? And God knew this is, this is what's coming. And so he establishes these things for the life of Israel to set them apart. And now Jesus comes, as we saw, and as the rest of the New Testament tells us, the law was pointing to him. All of those things, what to wear and what to eat and, and when to work and when not to work, all those things are pointing to Jesus and now he comes and fulfills those things. So now, for example, Mark is very clear, Jesus declares all foods clean. That means what sets us apart from the world is not what we eat as, as Christians. What sets us apart from the world is not the clothes that we wear as Christians. What sets us apart from the world is is nothing to do specifically and primarily with the, the external things of our life. So when we go to the Philippines, we can look at this, sorry, June, if you're listening, but really disgusting thing called the balut. 
and say, I can eat this because I love my Filipino brothers and sisters. It may take its toll on me later, but I can eat this. I can eat the shellfish soup gumbo that that Doug had. They had everything in there, you can imagine. Octopus and crab, and he'll tell you all about it later. But Jew couldn't do that. Oh, I, I can't. Now, sure, I can eat that. Why? Because I'm extending fellowship to brothers and sisters. And even non-believers. I don't have to worry about them serving something and, 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 and me saying, well, I, can't, I can't have that with you. No, I get to go to the nations and whatever they put before me, God says, it's okay to eat. It's okay to drink. It's okay to ingest. Because the thing that separates us now is not our external life. It is our hearts and the things that we value most. That is what sets us apart as Christians now. It's the value system of our life centered on the authority of Jesus Christ. So Jesus says, in by way of contrast in these verses, see everything the world values? These things are shamed in my kingdom. See everything the world shames? This is what we value in my kingdom. So what does he say here? Blessed are you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. But woe to you who are rich, for you receive your consolation. When poverty comes physically or spiritually, when your resources have come to an end and you realize you're utterly dependent upon God, then you know you will be one who sees the kingdom. Because your utter dependence on God is going to lead you to Christ. But if you are clinging to your wealth, if you are striving hard for money as a source of security, well, I just need that little bit more. I just need that little bit more. I just need that little bit more to be comfortable. Or spiritually, you're working hard, punching all the spiritual boxes because you know, if I just do this little bit more, if I do this little bit more ministry, then God will love me. He says, you've got all the consolation you're going to get in this life. You should not expect, you should not expect consolation from God in the next because you're not part of the kingdom. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. But woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. If you're hungry in this life, whether with an empty belly or an empty soul, and it leads you to long for God, then take heart, because you will not be hungry forever. Those that long and hunger for God will see God. He will be found, He will be known, and He will satisfy your soul. But if your belly is so full, or your soul so, so satisfied with other things, gods of your own making and sin in this world, then he says, on the last day, you're going to be famished because you're not part of my kingdom. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. But woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. When your sorrow for sin leads you to turn to God in repentance of faith, rejoice because God will hear and he will heal. He will forgive and he will make you glad. But if it's the things of this world that lead you to rejoice, if sin brings you laughter and happiness, expect only sorrow at the day of God's judgment because you're not part of my kingdom. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you. When all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Who are these false prophets? The people in ancient Israel who were supposed to be the spiritual shepherds. And the whole time the people are running away from the law, worshiping false gods. But these false prophets want to be well liked. They want a good reputation. They want to be supported and well fed and live in the, in the, in the, the courts of the wealthy and the, in the pagan kings. Pagan in the sense that they're on the throne of Israel but they're living like pagans. And so they say, no, no, God's not mad. God's not mad. You're fine. You're fine. Just offer the sacrifice. It'll all be okay. 
And God says, a curse be upon you. For you said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Likewise, Jesus says today, if you are yelling peace, peace before people, because they have stronger political clout than you, because they have more power and authority before you, and you just want a nice life with no troubles and lots of friends, if you deny Jesus before men, you should expect Jesus to deny you before men and His Father on the day of judgment. But if in this life your devotion leads you to end up friendless and despised, rejoice, for God is not far from you. And in fact, whatever you've lost in this life, He promises to make up a hundredfold in the fullness of eternal fellowship with Him in the next. Even now, Jesus says, I am with you, and I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. So the question is, what do we value most? Our values will shape our lives And we have to ask, when the world looks at us, what do they see? A distinct people or a bunch of sellouts? Do they see a people who are totally and utterly devoted to Jesus or people who look and live just like them? I love this song called Stay Away From Jesus, where Matt Papa gets to really the heart of this issue and brings together many of the teachings of Jesus. He says of Jesus this. He'll say, take your cross and die. So if you want a comfy life, stay away from Jesus. He says, narrow is the gate and hard is the way. Hate the ones you love and love the ones you hate. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. But if your works are good enough, stay away from Jesus. He says, be either hot or cold. You can't serve God in gold. Indifference is the road that leads to hell. So if you're happy in your stuff, and if 10% is enough, stay away from Jesus. He says, come follow me. Lose your life and be free. You must die to believe like a child come and see. He draws every line in love. He is good and he is just. And the words he speaks are meant to set you free. But if you think you are the way and in control you have to stay, then stay away from Jesus. But let the children come. Let the prideful run. The Lord, the Lord is his name. He has died the world to save. But to believe is to obey. So come or stay away. See, Jesus is no dalliance. He's no flirtation. He's not something you dip your toe in and, and try for a while. Jesus is either the one that you, that you trust as your Savior and the one that you treasure as the most precious thing you have in this life who brings you to God with forgiveness or life or He's the one who asks too much. He's the King that you will refuse to yield to, the teacher you will not trust. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. You may lose the world in coming to Jesus. But what you gain is so much more. It is so worth it. This morning, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, go to him and find rest for your weary soul. Find a treasure greater than anything you will in this life. If you've seen the film Apollo 13, you remember those moments right after the dangerous malfunction in the space capsule. The scene is focused on mission control as people are running around. The problems are being identified and panic is starting to set in. And the NASA administrator is saying this is going to be the worst disaster in NASA has ever experienced. But Gene Krantz, the flight director, straightens his tie and says, With all due respect, sir, I believe this will be our finest hour. Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount and he is lowering the expectations. 
He is not saying, follow me and you'll be rich. Follow me and there'll be bags of gold waiting for you. Follow me and the waterbed and all the comforts you can imagine are waiting for you. That's not what he does. He says, basically two things are going to happen. It's either going to be the worst disaster in your life or it's going to be your finest hour. And it comes down to one thing and one thing only. Are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me? If you trust me, it's going to lead you into a war zone. But I am preparing you for the battle. And I'm not just sending you out. I am going ahead as the captain of your salvation. And you can be assured that no matter how hard the licks are that you take, no matter how many times you get shoved down into the mud and your face gets ground into the dirt, I am going to be there to pick you up and to clean you off and to lead you to keep going all the way into the final day when we stand before my heavenly Father and He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Everything, everything is about Jesus. Don't be caught in the middle. Father, we are thankful for Your Son. We are thankful for the realism with which He presents life in Him. God's salvation is so glorious the world stands as Christ's enemy. And if we are Christ, then we are the world's enemy. So Father, Jesus is being so clear for us. He's being so honest about what awaits us when we follow Him. But God, He also says that whatever difficulty we face pales in comparison to the glory that comes of knowing Him and being known by His Father. God, I pray this morning that For those that have never trusted in Christ, that you will move in their hearts this morning and help them to see the cross where Jesus bled and died, bearing your wrath for their sins and was raised back to life three days later and appeared to his disciples as proof that he was the Savior who can take away sins and could even conquer death. They would see that and believe. And God, for those of us who have already believed this morning, I pray that we would not be left stale in our faith, that God, we would not be left as people trying to sit on the fence playing it easy, but God, we would see the clear, the clear call of our Savior to follow, to believe, and to obey. Knowing, God, that it is not simply a matter of rigorous religious duty. God, it is is an invitation to obedience that leads to a life of joy and spiritual fruitfulness for Christ's kingdom. God, with that before us, may we afresh today, bow the knee before God our Savior and our King and follow Him. We pray in His name. Amen.